You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Tony Quintong, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Securion Group. The Securion Group provides extensive financial market analysis to validate founders' initiatives, identifying systemic management and operational issues preventing the achievement of higher performance, while creating and implementing innovative strategies to mitigate risk for all stakeholders. On today's show, we talk about when is a company past the point of saving? When should a company bring in outside consultants? What are some of the first things one analyzes in a company to make an assessment? When looking for a turnaround expert, what questions should someone ask the person or team they're interviewing? And much more. All right, now let's start this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Tony, I'm very excited for today's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, for our audience out there, can you give a brief intro of your career up until this point? Well, here's a quick one. So um, when I graduated from college, actually, I was supposed to be a doctor. Some time off bartended for a couple of years. And then when I got back to my business economics degree, from there I had a job as a financial analyst for a large UK company. Did that for several years. And a colleague said to me, look, you can continue this, but you have two choices. You can go to the, the comedy club over at San Francisco, or you can go work for Xerox and get some tech back on. So what's wrong with being a financial analyst? He goes, it's pretty limiting. I said, okay. So I did that. Uh, and from bartending, being an analyst to going to Xerox, I got to tell you, it's been a great ride. And I can look back at 35, 40 years saying, I've had a good time. Ups and downs, it's all about a journey. So today, I'm a managed advisor. I have a small boutique firm. We do a lot of pre-M&A work, and it's been a great ride. And I'm going to continue that ride because I feel like I'm still in my 20s. So this pre-M&A firm, what exactly do you do? Is it prepping the companies? Is it turning around companies? Is it, what type of advisory work is done? You know, if you really take a look at, there's, there's several types of coaches out there, which are terrific, but we get involved in projects where we found that there was a real sweet spot is companies are going through a quandary. And that quandary requires what in the corporate world, the larger corporations would call it corporate development. In the world we're in, it's still corporate development. We're helping every aspect of the business because some of these founders of privately held companies get stuck. They're in a quandary. And they need somebody with an outside help. They don't need the kumbaya, which is needed at times. They need someone to guide them through some really challenging times. And that's what we do. We actually guide them through challenging times. They call us back in at times. There's multiple entry points for the team I have. But the key is at some point in time, they might may want to acquire another company or they may want to be acquired. But we're in two, three, sometimes as early as five years in advance of that ever happening. So we call it pre-M&A, but in, a, in the real world, it's a, management consulting for folks that are stuck. So this management consultant for companies that are stuck, what are some situations that they could be stuck? Is it they're stuck because they're not growing? Is it stuck that they don't have a new idea for a product? Like, what does it mean by stuck? Well, I'll tell you, it's an interesting, it's a great question because there's variations of it. So I can tell you that the majority of the clients we deal with are profitable. So that's the good news. They're not needing to be restructured, recapitalized. But they're stuck from a standpoint, let's say from a family-run business, there's no one to succeed the business. So they need an outside looking in to say, well, if we brought in somebody, who's the right person for it? 
I think the biggest challenge that we find is being stuck is really at the leadership level. Leadership is stuck as to what do I do next with the company? Who do I turn it over to? How do I grow the company? Or we define it in two other ways. Some are lifestyle businesses, which they run everything through the company. And some are businesses that are truly run by the books. It's like looking at a Ferrari, a beautiful Ferrari goes by and you open the hood and you realize the engine hasn't been clean or the hoses haven't been changed. A lot of times our companies look great from the outside, but they're really in pain on the inside. So let's go through each of those three examples that you gave. First, it's run like a lifestyle business. Yep. What does that mean? And then two, let's talk about this Ferrari that, you know, with the, with the cracked pipes and, and the the water main leaking or, or whatever. And then there was the one even before that, I guess it was at the leadership. Things are, are stuck. Let's go through each of those for our audience in detail. Well, let's take a look at the leadership. Let's go backwards on that one because it's, uh, you know, you get to a certain age, you kind of go with the, the newest topic first and then you go to the other one. Leadership, typically what happens in family-run companies, the company has been given to a son or a daughter and they grow it in the way that maybe their parents grew it. And then they realize that the market has changed or they haven't realized that the market changed, but their numbers aren't there. So the leadership piece gets stuck and what they don't need necessarily is someone to come in and say, Hey, how could I be a better leader? Because by that time, by the time we get in there, there's something actually wrong financially with the company. It could be doing better, still profitable, but their revenue growth top line hasn't, hasn't taken off. I call that a fixed mindset versus an open mindset. So we run into the fixed mindset when folks are, hey, this is the way things have always been done. That's a fixed mindset. Open mindset, hey, I'm open to some new ideas. So we do an extensive amount of qualifying. In fact, one client said, I feel like you're interviewing us. And we have to interview them because we're going to put a lot of time and effort. We're going to partner with them. And then at some point in time, we're going to transition out. And that's probably the hardest thing for them to realize at the end of our engagement is that we're transitioning out because it becomes so dependent on us and they depend on our guidance. And we're usually giving advice to the family as well. So that's the hard part about the leadership. Quite frankly, some of these folks are not really ready to be running the company and they're not used to having to deal with all the economic changes. Maybe they need to pivot. Maybe they have to new ideas. I'll give you a perfect example. We were involved with the bakery for many years, come to realize that the bakery uh, was losing market share. And with a third-party unemotional approach, we looked at it. So look, at there's 16 stores here, 16 retail. Typical fast food chains are about 750 square feet. You're double, sometimes three times the size. You've got too much space. Second, you really should be providing fresh frozen. Oh, no, we're not doing it. Why not? I mean, there's a big market for it. Look at Trader Joe's, tremendous opportunity. So leadership is fixed mindset versus an open mindset. We need to qualify that fairly quickly. So that's the leadership component. We talked a little bit about some of the challenges with this Ferrari concept. So the Ferrari concept is, is simple. Most of the companies that you look out there today, they look pretty good. But if I were to name some of these companies, you wouldn't realize that they have some challenges. And the challenges always start with the financials. Because the financials is almost like health. It's the blood work that you analyze to determine, you know, red blood cells, white blood cells. You can really determine what the cause of some of these challenges are. And then you begin there. And we look at operational organization behavior. And then we look at strategy, complementary strategy. We look at things that maybe McKinsey or Bain would do or a Boston Consulting Group would do. But the, the biggest component is we get that leadership assessment in quickly. And we have to do that because any ideas we put in place, our brand and our professionalism is tainted if, in fact, they don't hit milestones that we recommend they do. By the way, these milestones are not our milestones. We look at the industry sector that they're in and we look at the milestones that they should be achieving for, let's say, margins in that industry. And we try to get them to follow that. Because remember, the most of these folks, 
don't understand the difference between a real business and a lifestyle business. And then we explain it to them. They realize, hmm, either they get on the program and the bank tells them to get on the program or the investors or the board or family member, or they don't. And they can sustain the business for a period of time, but they probably can't scale it. And that's really where we come in to help them sustain it predictably and then scale it. So going back there, running like a real business with sure. the metrics. So are you saying that for this type of business, there's this much on average cost of goods, there's this much operating, there's this, and, and break it down and go, okay, this is where the industry average is, but this is where you are. And now we, let's at least get you to industry average and hopefully get you better. Is that? That's, ab- that's absolutely correct. But let me add one more element to that. Anytime that we assess the leadership, and that could be the leadership of the board, the leadership of the actual founders, or the leadership of the folks that have been hired to run it, we have to understand what is the motivation for them to do anything at all. I'll give you an example. Lacking any compelling emotional and financial pain, both, nothing ever gets done. I mean, if you really think about it, it's not painful enough. Oh, I can deal with it. Or let's say it's a, a situation where they're losing money. That's a financial pain. And, every, and in fact, they have a limited timeline to survive. That's financial pain. They're having stress at home. They're having stress at work. That's an emotional pain. So we have to identify that fairly quickly. And oftentimes it's hidden because nobody, an entrepreneur that's been successful, success being defined as they've grown the business, they're profitable, maybe they had an exit. Anybody that wants to be successful in running their company is financially and emotionally pretty stable. Because we're involved in, remember, sustainability and scalability for an eventual exit down the road. But if they need a colleague to come in and really coach them from an emotional standpoint, you know, we have resources to do that as well. PhDs in behavior come in typically. What percentage do you say need help with that emotional component before diving back into the fundamental, the business fundamentals? I'm going to tell you that 100%. And I'll tell you why, why that is from experience. Oftentimes it's massive. We're doing pretty well. We really don't need the help, but the numbers show that they could use some help. But if the leadership is in denial, if they're at the point where no one has, has identified that emotional financial pain they may be going through, they continue to be in denial because the ego that got the business built also can be the ego that actually causes the business to derail and fail. So we, we really need to understand that component first. That's why it's so important that we interview pretty hard in, up front. This interview process, is it a one-time meeting or is this multiple meetings over a span of time where you're really, okay, I think I have a basically due diligence, a 30, 60 day due diligence where you're going through a data room. Like how deep is this due diligence before you go, okay, we're going to work with you for the next three to five years? Well, three to five years would be great uh, if we were to do that. But our, our engagement, depending on the client, is anywhere between six to 18 months. Um, at that point, we should be able to transition out and give them the tools they need to continue to sustain and scale the business. But how important is the understanding of the emotional component of it? It's absolutely essential for us to interview them, but interview them in three or four different venues. And I'll tell you why. In the venue of a corporate conference room or their conference room in their office, they're somewhat protective of what they say. They may open it up a little bit. That's one piece of information. After we gather that information, I will say, or one of my colleagues say, well, let's go grab a coffee or let's, I'd love to host lunch. Because if we get them in an environment where they're a little bit more relaxed, a little bit more open, we're going to hear more things that are bothering them. And then the third meeting, again, could be with back in their offices. Now we've got the notes. So it's typically a three to four interview process before we take on a project. Now, some folks will say, wait, wait a minute. That's to take that long. You know, if you're going to be with someone for six to 18 months, I'm not saying it's a marriage. 
But I am going to tell you that we're going to go through the pains they're going through and we're going to go through the elations. And I can't tell you how many birthdays and how many weddings and how many engagement parties we've been invited to because we were intimate with the, uh, with the leadership team. So it's a great journey, but it's an emotional journey and we have to be sensitive to that. For this emotional due diligence at the very beginning when you're taking them to lunch or, or meet them for coffee and that, do you have their financials in front of you? Were they sent? Are they, because isn't that also a huge component of, okay, how do we even talk to this person about these things? Well, the financials, as you mentioned, first of all, anytime we talk about financials, that's in the conference room. So when we're looking at financials, that's pretty private. You can't take that to public. So we'll do that component. We'll get a snapshot of their financials at a very high level, you know, obviously with the non-disclosure. But before we take the engagement, we're doing an industry snapshot. So I have two analysts that'll look at the company, look at the industry, and we'll get a good understanding of what industry they're in. What are some of the recent acquisitions that have occurred? What are strategic acquisitions that occurred by the by a particular client in an industry as well, or company in that industry? But we'll do the due diligence component on our part to assess the company in the industry. Now, when we look at the financials, remember, we, we have to establish credibility first, and you establish credibility, old mantras, get to know them, get to like them, then get to trust them. It works both ways. We'll go over the details of the numbers at probably the second or third meeting, but typically not in public. It's going to be in a formal venue because that's how serious it is that we look at the numbers. Can you imagine going to lunch and saying, hey, by the way, I'm your doctor. I'd like to do all your blood work. Uh, here? Probably not a good choice. Yeah, at least the doctor would go, okay, that's going to do this to you, that that food. You know what? We're, we're going. <laughs> right. No dessert here. No yeah. dessert on this no, table. You know, you're absolutely right. Uh, by the way, did you wash your hands? <laughs> okay, okay. So, so going back, even before all this, Who's the one that typically says, hey, Tony, let's get your group. Could, it, could we refer to them as turnaround experts or just consultants or what would be the best way? I think the best way you could say is their advisors. And there's a ton of advisors out there. So the, the main difference is some of the smaller companies we deal with, what does corporate development mean? Our role is to take a look at the entire operations of company, take a look at the industry they're in, and give them an assessment of some of the options they have to grow the business. We also give them some of the options they can to scale it, or maybe even down the road discuss possibly acquiring a strategic company that would complement them. But that's where we're really trying to understand their industry. Now, we would never tell them, in fact, I've had a client say, you think you know more than me about my business? The answer is absolutely not. But much like a physician, We've done enough of these advisory guidance sessions to understand some of the key metrics that they should probably be tracking anyway. I mean, the hardest part of what we do, it really is the hardest part, is the qualification process up front. And the reason that's the hardest is because when we look at, a, I would say on average, we probably look at four to five projects a week. Now, unlike a venture capitalist, which is maybe looking pre-recession, maybe they're looking at 20 to 30 a day. And unless you get referred into that venture capitalist, your business plan is probably, your pitch deck is probably at the bottom. It's the same way with us. We are, we are scanning a lot of opportunities, but we have to make sure that one, we add value to them, and two, we get value back. But you know, it reminds me of something I read the other day. It's an old article, but I read it again. You know, it's, I also, I'll also ask sometimes a client or a connector, uh, so when do you think the most milkshakes are sold? And they're going, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, I'm just curious. When do you think they're sold? Morning, noon, afternoon, evening, late afternoon? And I throw in the late afternoon and they go, late afternoon? I go, did you read the article? And they go, mm, no. And they smile. I said, well, it's actually early morning. They said, no, I can't believe it. And I said, well, it's the article's about the job to be done. And we have to look as advisors. What is our real job to be done? Most milkshakes, by the way, since you asked, 
most milkshakes are sold in the morning for one reason or a couple of reasons. Number one, Clay Christensen, Harvard Business Review, Harvard professor, noticed that working for McDonald's, some of the other fast chain, they were trying to determine what the next real strategy was with that fast food chain. But in that process, they identified that, hey, you sell a lot of milkshakes in the morning. Well, they come to find out that milkshakes have a job to be done. Number one, the commuter uses the milkshake. The one they think is healthy. Now, milkshake must be healthy. Number two, it has to have a certain viscosity to get them from point A to point B, which is about 30 to 45 minutes of sucking on that straw. And that thick chocolate or strawberry vanilla ice cream milkshake has to create an experience that they can deal with traffic. That's the job to be done. So why do we qualify so hard in the front end? Because what is the real job we're doing here? I mean, there, there was another story where uh, the father wanted me to tell the son that after all the work we did, you need to tell him he's not qualified to run the company. I said, well, shouldn't that be your job? You're the father. Uh, no, I need you. So we go to dinner. I pick a public place. Almost like it sounds a godfather. Well, I was going to say, did you get a bonus for this? It doesn't sound like it's originally in the, the original scope of work. Well, you know, that's an interesting other part of it. You can sit down and write a very detailed scope of work. But my role in building the relationship and the roles of the folks on my team is we're going to go off scope for certain things. And it's just going to happen. I mean, we, I mean, you're talking about emotions. We went to dinner. I set up the restaurant. I happened to be a client of the folks. And uh, I figured, you know, I know enough about the personalities. Nothing could go bad here because it's in public. But when it came down to the middle of dinner, the son says, so why are we meeting, Dad? And the father looked at his table and looked at his plate and then said, Tony has something to say, tell you. <laughs> I had, you know, I, I remember having linguine alla Mongolia, and I remember one of the clams came out of my mouth. I looked at it, and I thought, well, I guess I'm on. Let's just say the person whose name was David. David, your father has come to the conclusion, the father introduced me, you know, you did. Uh, (laughs) Okay, we did. How about we? Came to the conclusion that you need some additional work experience before you could be the president of this organization. And he stouted his name. He goes, Dad, what's your decision? Father looked back at the table. He goes, my decision is Tony's decision. And I said, well, our joint decision is this. We're going to work with you for a while, but you're probably out about two years before you could run this organization. So the son took my linguine alla Bengali and put it on the father's lap in this restaurant. The hardest part about all that is when the father started crying. So what do you do in that situation as a good advisor? It's, hey, this is not in the scope of the, of the project. It isn't, but it is. Because our job is to guide him through the challenges. And the biggest challenge there was succession planning. So they probably had to but we recommend they look outside the firm to bring in an interim or full-time CEO. Tough decision, but it had to be made. How come the son, I mean, two years of training, that's, a, that's an amazing opportunity. It's amazing, but let's go back to lifestyle business. If you're given the business, actually given, and it's a successful, successful business, there's what I call entitlement. And the entitlement kind of can seep through the family members, if not some of the key employees. The other thing, and the other word I love to use is comfort. As, as executives, managers, even the employees become comfortable, they become a fixed mindset. But what happens after that? Complacency. When complacency sets in, uh, it's, it's difficult to move, but it's not insurmountable. But then, then you've got to earn the trust of the management team below the leadership team and then the trust of the employee. And by the way, that's the hard part because you get involved with the clients and at some point you do need to transition out. People go, well, where's Tony? Where's Secura? And where's Layla? Where's Chris? Where's Simon? They, we build a bond with them and, uh, and a trust, but then it's time for us to transition out. So question on that. What 
Well, two, I'm, I'm curious. One, I want to know what kind of this transition out process is. Also, even before that, what's kind of that setting up operation process from the, hey, we've had a few meetings and now we are coming in and actually working with this company. So actually, let's instead of, before talking about that transition out, let's talk about that transition in. Mm. What does that look like? Well, again, if let's say it's a family or let's say it's a board. It depends on the strength of the leadership team that's already in there because we do have to have a good reason as to why we're in there. Now, I'll give you a couple of scenarios. The first scenario is we really are there to help sustain and scale the business. So we can come in with a third party removed. We're looking at the, uh, the whole company and the whole industry and the whole competitive landscape without any emotions involved. That's pretty safe because the real message there is we're there to help the company continue to grow. But let's say we're brought in because they really are looking in the next year to two years to get prepared for that Ferrari scenario. Looks good from the front, but someone's going to pop the hood. You know, we're already preparing things by bringing in colleagues if we're in that process. We're not an investment banking group. We aren't. But we're advisors. And we'll bring in a top-notch investment uh, banking group to come in and work with us on help working with the client to get them prepared to go to market. Now, that's a different scenario because we're really there to make sure that this company has the best financials out there cleaning up the margins, operational efficiencies, and making sure the leadership team is ready for a transition. The hard part, though, is when you aren't telling the employees why you're really there. And if there's anything that's more difficult about the role we do as an advisor is how do we continue to support the leadership and the board of directors when the employees have no idea that when we're all said and done, there might be some operational cuts. I mean, look what's going on with Twitter. Now, I'm sure the executives were taken care of on the Twitter acquisition. We all know that. And that's why there's great employment attorneys out there. But I can honestly tell you that uh, not knowing anything else about that, that's the same scenario that, uh, by the public knowledge, by the way, that there was some people let go. And that's the hardest part about it is what about the folks that aren't making it? Well, they were complacent. Can they be mentorable? Can they be mentored? And we'll give that advice too. Hey, these are folks that can be mentored. But that is the hard part, transitioning out. That's transitioning in for those two scenarios. And there really are the, only those two scenarios. So going back even further, even when you find out about this company, if it, the person or, or leader, they, they might be in denial, but their numbers are failing. Is it the board that reaches out to you? Is it another C-level? Who reaches out and says, hey, I think we kind of need your help? So let's go back to the scenario about the milkshake, the job to be done. The bank has a concerted effort and a commitment to support that client. But the minute the bank realizes that, you know, is my loan with that company in jeopardy, they'll bring us in to take a quick look at the company. Now, CPA firm will look at the company and say, you know, you're going to have to pay a lot of taxes this year. And by the way, uh, your revenue is dropping, profitability is dropping. You know, maybe a third party coming in would look at it. Surprisingly, human resource consultants will look and call us up and say, you know, there's a little bit of dysfunctionality with the family. Can you come take a look at the company? So these number of different resources that are out there, these professionals that have a great network, will call us in to look at something because one, what's their interest? What is the job to be done for them? Number one, protect my loan. Number two, retain my client. Number three, they're going to get in trouble if we don't address some of these HR issues that maybe you folks can address for compliance. So that, that's who brings us in. Is there any time it's the opposite scenario? Man, this, this company is doing really well, but we want to bring you guys in just 
so we can turn it to 11? There are a number of times that we'll get in uh, to help a company get it to 11. But, you know, that's where an executive coach can come in. And there's a lot of great ones out there and good ones out there that can actually guide the leadership team. What really triggers us to come in is not only here's where we want to be, but a lot of these companies are not measured by any performance. They're not measured by objectives. And the key on that is if you, you know, why do anything if you can't measure it, right? So we're taking a look at the company. We can get them from an operation standpoint more efficient, maybe improve their margins. In that scenario, they're doing really well. But it would be nice to have a third party removed, take a look at that Ferrari engine, as we mentioned earlier, and say, you know what? You should really be doing 280 miles an hour and you're really sputtering at 200 miles an hour. Well, here's a couple of reasons why. And that's where the third party removed can give that kind of assessment. Interesting. Okay. So you're brought in, talked about the, the onboard. Okay. From month, maybe two to eight. When you're talking to the people and you're, you're making the assessments, who stays, who goes, what's that like? Well, again, if we're looking at the company just from a sustainability, scalability standpoint, forget about a pre-M&A analysis and so forth. There are three types of individuals when I come into a company or my team does. And those three are pretty simple. There's the one that's on the fence. They have their arms crossed and they're thinking, I don't know. You know, I've seen this before, but I'm going to wait to see what really happens. That's the person on the fence. There's a second type of person in there that says, you know, I've seen this before. I've been with advisors before. I'll outlast you. And there's a third that says, oh, God, I have so many great ideas I want to share with you. And those are the ones that ones that want to share their idea, their enthusiasm, and it's sincere. And they've just been waiting for this venue to be able to share their ideas. And assuming that the trust has been earned, you keep them because they've got a great number of ideas. Ideation comes from everyone in the company. We want them. The one that's on the fence, they're also valuable. And you want to be able to find out, you have to convince them, you have to earn their trust because they're valuable after we assess it. And we want them to stay. And we're going to give them about 90 days to, to figure out what role they really want to play. They're salvageable. Absolutely. But that first one, I've seen your type before. I'll outlast you. You know, I went to a conference one time and I have to tell you, one of the executives on the high tech companies here said, if there's a cancer within the organization, it has to be moved fairly quickly. My view on that is, is it really a cancer or just a communication issue? Before we start calling it a cancer, let's really take a look at it. And it usually takes us about 30 to 60 days to figure it out. Now, why is it sooner? Because we walk in, people are somewhat in interview mode. They're kind of wanting to make sure they come out in the best light. You know, when you tie this all together, there's a tremendous amount of emotion and intelligence about what we do. And but that's the part you got to love. Where is the biggest pushback in all this? Is it from that one in three or is it from maybe the other senior management or maybe it's from the board where, or the son of the, the CEO, where, where's the biggest pushback normally? Well, if we look at a privately held company, family run, the biggest pushback is, you know, you may see the father as a fatherly figure, pushbacks from the mother. Surprising. Really? Absolutely surprising. If you don't earn the trust of the mother, listen, she is looking at her son or her daughter or her husband come home from running the family business, she has a lot to say. She's not just not saying it to us. So we always, when I do that second coffee or that dinner or lunch, I'm always asking, is there anyone else in the family we could have join us for lunch? No, I'll make that decision. Well, there's a flag there. Because, you know, there's an old saying, the quietest person in the room is the most dangerous. Why? Because you don't know what they're thinking. They haven't said anything. You want to bring them out and make sure that you get their opinion as well. And then you got to connect all the dots. 
and figure out, okay, here's how, it's almost like being a doctor. Remember, I, physics was the one that knocked me out. If you said to me, Tom, what would you rather be doing? I'd rather be doing this, but I'd like to, like to be a doctor. Not because I want to prescribe anything, because it, there's a tremendous amount of people you want to help. So there is a process that we have to put in place, but it, before any of that begins, we've got to get the buy-off of the private. Now, let's go back to the other question. Well, who else is pushing back? By the time the board gets us involved, somebody on that board is strong enough to say there's a problem here. And most of the time, we've had good experience with that board member. Therefore, they're going to bring us back in. So that's it. The third is when the owner of some of these privately held companies, his ego is so big that they have an advisor sharing ideas that they want to claim as their own. I'm okay with that. As long as it gets out there, he supports it, and we can execute, and then we can measure it. But sometimes they're, the ego that got them there is also the ego that gets them in trouble. So with that, when is a company past the point of no return? Mm. Well, interesting. We had that situation last year. And I can tell you that, remember, we, we looked at the blood work component of it. So when we're looking at the financials, you know, you look at the past three years of financials, pretty standard. But then you look at the year-to-date financials and you start flagging certain things in the company. and if the number one key for us on that is what does the cash flow look like? Now, look, I'm not going to come across as a CFO or a financial analyst, despite the fact that was back in the 80s that I did that. I'm going to tell you that the financials tell us cash is king. Everyone says cash is king. If they can pay their bills, if they can grow the company, if there's cash in the bank that they have access to, particularly in this recession prone period of time, that's a big indicator for us. How strong is our cash flow? Now, that's only the component of it, right? We go back to the emotional piece after that which is basically do they understand how bad things really are. Now, are they, the question on that could be, well, when do you tell them that there's nothing you can do for it? It's, uh, it's pancreatic, let's say. Well, you still got to give them some resources. Now, they're going to be in denial. But think about this. Why do ABC consulting firms are, you know, exist? Why do bankruptcy attorneys exist? I mean, the fact that someone said, I don't, I'm not going bankrupt. That's a denial issue. And that's why, again, it goes back to the emotional component. Do they understand how bad things really are? Now, why do we have to transition out of that? Or why do we not take the project? We'll take the project to tell them what they need to do next, but we won't take the project from a paid engagement. Because they're looking for some form of guidance, and the best thing we can do is tell them these are your three options. And by the way, uh, it doesn't matter to us how you got here. Only from the standpoint of where do you go next? But if we took on the engagement, we would have to look at how we got here. Interesting. Okay, so how you got here, next steps with that. I'm kind of wondering, how do you decide from your team who gets brought in? Is it always like these five people get brought in? Or is it, okay, this engagement will need these three resources or two resources? How do you go about designing for each case? Well, there's three criteria. First criteria is does that particular team member have the core expertise we need for this particular segment? One could be the financial analyst component. Maybe they drop into the interim CFO. Maybe it's a VP of marketing role. Maybe it's an operational efficiency role, operations person. Maybe even HR. The key there is do they have the core expertise that's needed immediately? Remember, we come in at multiple, multiple entry points. It doesn't have to be all in one. They may have an HR compliance issue. And we have an HR consulting team that can go in. The key is do they have the core expertise to address the client's issues and challenges? Second. Do they have the personality to work with the client? I have a two tremendous CFOs. Both have CFA backgrounds. Great with the numbers, but not real personable, not real social. Still need them, 
They'll need them in that practice, but they're probably not going to be the face of the company. So those are the two primary. Do they have the expertise? Number one, do they have the personality? Because what good is it to tell them what needs to be done if the client's not listening? It goes back to that emotional intelligence component. We're not transactional. If it's not a good fit, we're not going to do. That's why we interview hard in the front. With that, how many people or other consultants would you say will take any engagement that's, that's put in front of them versus being this selective? Well, that's a great question. Even for the period, I just wrote an article on this in our website, but the key is, do they really need us in this recessionary period? If we're even considering a recession down the road, six, nine months, whoever you speak with, are they going to use our expertise? Do they need our expertise? Going back to the real emotion, what's driving the decision? Since we're not transactional, we need to figure out, do they really need us? So we figure what their industry is doing under these recessionary periods, and we give them some ideas. But most of them right now, most of their advisors out there, I can't really speak for all of them, but if they're transactional, they need to get a deal closed fairly quickly. We don't. We have to build a relationship over a period of time. So we're not transactional in that sense. So a lot of advisors, depending on the, their business model, may, may, take, may take a project, may take any project. You know? I would have to say the majority of advisors out there that at least I've had experience with are terrific. And they're consultative enough to say, no, I'm not going to do it. But there are some that if the client fogs a mirror, they're on it. That's terrible. With all your experience from all the, the engagements, what are some key takeaways that our listeners, I mean, our listeners, mostly entrepreneurs, mm. some investors, leaders in tech, mostly Bay Area, but we have pockets around the world. What are some key takeaways that they could gain from this to not be in a bad situation? Well, I would have to say this. I love the fact I play a lot of golf. And I do it because it's my, my own therapy for the weekends. But it's interesting, when I'm playing golf, my ego tells me I have that shot. But the reality is, can I execute against that shot? And I think what happens is our ego overcomes what should really be done. Entrepreneurs have tremendous egos. We all have egos. Otherwise, we wouldn't be where we are today because that's that ego that feeds us to continue to strive and do better, whether you're being a better parent, better family person, better business person, better friend and consultant. But the, the real challenge in trying to discern your advice and guidance is you've got to really feel like a natural giver. You've got to be out there saying, I want to help this person. I mean, how many people come to you and say, hey, could you give me a hand? Could you help me out? I mean, help is a very powerful four-letter word. So you try to help as many people as you can out there. But if they could contain the ego or at least do this, ask their good friend, and a good friend will be honest, what would you do? Or ask their good friend, do you think I come across too harsh? Am I too blunt? Am I too demanding? Now, they could ask their wife or their spouse or significant other, and I can tell you that they would probably tell them, but to get two or three or four, I'd have to four data points. Because the question is this, how am I doing? And oftentimes we don't ask other people, what could I do differently? If the ego gets hurt, there's a reason. You've got to have a good amount of comfort with yourself and be somewhat secure with yourself. You know, I talked to you about an incident that happened several months ago, and I come to realize three things. If more entrepreneurs and more business leaders realize this, I think they'd be wildly more successful. And I'm talking about success, one element, one of, one of which is finance, but that's not the main success component. Number one, are they continually opening their mind with an open mind of learning something new? Number one, so they keep a healthy mind. Now, here's the other part, the healthy body. 
Now, I'm not saying they've got to look like a model, but if they've got to do something to get the energy and to get the juices flowing and they can read about testosterone, all the things that they need to keep healthy, particularly during these COVID times, uh, that's number one, healthy mentally and physically. Number two, they need a foundation. That foundation keeps the moral compass. What I mean by the moral compass is they know the difference between right or wrong. I had a client say to me after they were taking money out of the Coke machine, I said, you know, that it's for the employees. And if we ever do an audit and we're trying to figure out these numbers, he goes, it's not, it's not illegal if you're not caught. That's a deep, deeper rooted psychology question. That's something where I got to bring in a real behaviorist with a PhD in behavior. But they've got to have a moral compass and they got to have that solid foundation. Because what happens is, let's say they become wildly successful. If they don't have that moral foundation, they can easily get swayed. The last component of that is capital. And I'm not going to kid you. We all need capital. And we need, now the question is, do I need to be driving that Ferrari? Yeah, after all the bills are paid, the kids' college is done, you've got your health covered, everything abundance is taken care of. Yeah, of course, buy yourself a Ferrari if that's, if that's what makes you happy. But I think we have to have capital to have leverage. It doesn't have to be a lot. It just has to be enough to say, you know what? I'm living comfortably. If you want more capital, what are you going to give up on? Well, you're going to give up with that foundation of the family. You might have to give up your health. So find that balance. Health mentally, physically, and foundation of uh, family. And then figure out how do you get the capital. Do you think in the years to come with this huge population retiring, do you think there's going to be the leaders, the people with the skills that are going to be able to come in to take over these companies, or do you think there's going to be a huge lack? Well, that's a great question because if you take a look at artificial intelligence and where it's going today, and distinction between artificial intelligence and machine learning, the fact that you've got Big Blue and some of the other machines out there actually beating the world best in chess, there's going to be a point in time where artificial intelligence, some form of robotics, will play a big role in running a company. But leading people, that's different. So I think that as long as my son is 30, 37, and he's learned the hard way leadership skills and running a company, my daughter is an architect, and she learned the hard way as well, going up the, uh, hitting against the glass ceiling as an architect. I can tell you that those experiences, as long as they're nurtured, as long as executive coaches are out there. And by the way, I want to clarify one thing about executive coaching. I think executive coaches are terrific, but I don't think you can be an executive coach, an advisor, a guidance to all of these companies and the behavioral challenges you'll have if you haven't had failure and success in your background. If you haven't seen a multitude of different industries, because you can take from each. There's a book, I won't mention it out there, but there is a book out there and it t- talks about how where we are today is a culmination of all our experiences. So if we could learn that, if we could learn from that, the answer to your question is, will there be Lack of the leadership out there? No. I don't think there'll be lack of leadership. We're a society that has to be connected. Look what COVID did. I mean, God, I can't believe the golf course. I can't believe the venues. I mean, the restaurants. Everybody wants to be connected. So no, we're not going to be, uh, we, we, as long as we have a society of people that are driving these businesses and ideation comes to these folks, you're going to need leaders that can guide them through this. So no, I don't think there'll be a gap. Now, you didn't ask, you know, what level of leadership? And I think for a different Industries and different types of companies, different sizes, you'll have different types of leadership. But yeah, you're absolutely going to need leadership. We are a people-connected society, and we need to hope it's proven that even more so. Tony, is there anything that I forgot to ask before wrapping it up that you think our audience could really gain some, some takeaways from? 
Well, I, I mentioned a little bit about keeping the egos intact. The ego is a terrific opportunity to grow, and it's also a terrific opportunity to learn from. So it's okay to fail. That's number one. But it's okay to ask somebody's guidance, ask for some feedback. And I go, it goes back to the last three things I said about, you know, mentally, physical health and mental health, foundation, whether it's family or some kind of moral foundation, and capital. I think the one thing is, and years ago I learned this through an experience in Oregon. You know, in Oregon, when you go through a divorce, you got to have a therapist for like for four to six months, family therapist. Why is that? I don't know. Oregon's a little different about divorces. I can say that the one thing I, let's just call the person Ivan. I said, you know, Ivan, the saddest part of all this process is I don't want my children to go through this. And you know what he said to me? He goes, Tony, I've been doing this for almost 50 years. Therapy's not a bad thing. If they go see a therapist, isn't that a good thing? Now, let's take it to today. If you need an advisor, whether it's my firm or anyone else, go get the advice. And advisors out there are going to charge you. They're going to want to help you. Because I bet you deep down inside, every one of those advisors should have been a doctor. And I guess that's it. You got to be open-minded and willing to give and not really expect anything back financially in return. Just be willing to give and everything else will step out. All right, Tony, if our audience wants to get in touch with you or find out more, what's the best way to go about doing that? Well, email me, tonyatsecurion.com. That'd be, that'd be quick, or they can give me a call. I'm happy to pick up the phone and, and chat with them. And sometimes if it's more than an hour, you owe me a cup of coffee and a slice of apple pie with vanilla ice cream. Yes, I do love dessert. But I'm happy to chat with anybody about anything. I just enjoy helping folks. Fantastic. We'll have that information in the show notes. And with that, I'd like to thank Tony for being our guest this week on the Silicon Valley podcast. For our audience, please connect with me, Sean Flynn, S-H-A-W-N-F-L-Y-N-N. When I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast, I'm an investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital. So once again, connect with me on LinkedIn, go to our website, thesiliconvalleypodcast.com. And Tony, I got to thank you for an amazing episode this week of the Silicon Valley podcast. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.